to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Welcome to Systemic Racism in MBC Clinical Trials. I'm Sheila Pettiford, new co-host at Our NBC Life, and I'm joined in this episode by host Martha Carlson and executive producer Natalia Green. As we put the focus on how systemic racism is affecting outcomes in clinical trial diversity and what we, the patients and those who care for us, can do to change the picture. When we started thinking out this episode, we knew the jumping off point would be with Stephanie Walker, who led the BECOME project for the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. The findings were so impactful that the BECOME abstract and poster were discussed on stage at the annual American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, meeting this past summer in Chicago, an honor practically unheard of for patient-led research. She provides an overview of the results, and then we turn to patient advocate and team member of the BECOME project, Reverend Dr. Tawana Davis, who was on a clinical trial herself and talks to us about her experiences. Last, we go to Valerie Worthy, a patient navigator at Duke Cancer Institute and co-founder of TOUCH, the Black Breast Cancer Alliance, for her thoughts and advice on navigating barriers and breaking down racism in our care. This is a topic we all need to care about. Thank you for joining us. My name is Stephanie Walker. I wanted to talk to you about the BECOME Project, the patient-led research initiative sponsored by the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. It was to survey Black men and women living with metastatic breast cancer regarding their take on why or why not they would participate in clinical trials. The objectives was to understand the barriers to trial participation for Black patients with MBC and also to identify actions to increase participation. We did literature reviews. We did key informant interviews to come up with the survey questions. And we surveyed adults over the age of 18 in the U.S. We had 102 that self-identified as Black out of a total of 424 respondents. We found that 8 out of 10 Black people living with metastatic breast cancer would consider participation in clinical trials, but they weren't asked. Actually, 92% would be interested in learning more about clinical trials, but only 36% received as much information as they thought they needed from their oncology or healthcare team. The second action step was to inspire trust 
we all know about the trust issue that black people in general have with the healthcare providers. And that has gone on for generations and generations. Black patients wanted to learn about clinical trials from someone who had shared experiences. And when we say shared experiences, we're talking about someone that looks like them, that has the same racial or ethnic identity as themselves. They've had breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer, and they've also been in a clinical trial. The third actionable step was to ensure access. Black patients consider the following items to be barriers to participation in clinical trials, getting to the trial site, or it requires too many appointments and too many tests to participate in the clinical trial, finding a clinical trial and accessing it. 64% people said they would have had difficulty finding clinical trials. And we all know that there would be the expense If you find a center that happens to have a clinical trial that you're interested in, they don't take your insurance. And then you'd have to worry about changing your healthcare provider and facility. And they also worry that it may take extra cost on top of just their basic cancer care. The fourth actionable step that we found was that healthcare providers need to address the concerns that we have about clinical trials. Black patients were more likely than non-Black patients to believe unstudied treatments may be harmful. We need to address the worries about side effects and the effectiveness of the drug. So we feel that all stakeholders have a role to play in taking care of those four action steps. Some can be acted upon immediately. Some will take a little bit more time. How do we encourage healthcare providers to have that dialogue with us about clinical trials early on, not late? We partnered with other nonprofits on a symposium called Black Women Speak that focuses on having the dialogue with the healthcare provider, trying to find out why industry or pharma doesn't include us in the makeup of the clinical trial, and also to hear directly from the patient and caregivers of patients that have been in clinical trials. Black Women Speak Symposium will be held in San Antonio on December the 5th, which is the Monday before SABCS starts. Please join us. Go to blackwomenspeak.org and Register online. Registration is free. If you can't show up in person, you can also watch this symposium virtually. By focusing on Black patients with metastatic breast cancer and their experience with clinical trials, BECOME deserved attention for highlighting how clinical trials design is failing to reach Black patients. We turn to Reverend Dr. Tawana Davis, who is part of the team behind BECOME for insight into issues of communication, access, and trust. Here's Reverend Tawana. I am Reverend Dr. Tawana Davis. I was diagnosed in November of 2016 I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. 
I'm still grateful to be an advocate for breast cancer awareness, particularly for Black women that have a 41% mortality rate. How much time had passed before you started thinking about going on a clinical trial? My recurrence happened immediately. I was on Perceptin, Progetta, Carboplatin, and Taxotere. After those six rounds, I had my bilateral mastectomy. And then when I went for radiation planning, my radiation oncologist said, Tawana, all of your cancer came back. I was actually introduced to a clinical trial from one of the team members who said, going in to do surgery again is going to further debilitate you on your left side. Go and get a second opinion. And I did. And I had to switch teams and switch hospitals in order to be a part of this clinical trial. I was like the second to last person to be accepted into this clinical trial, this immunotherapy, before it closed. Clinical trials were never mentioned to me until this one person said to me, if you were my sister, I would tell you to get a second opinion. So go get a second opinion. And that's how I was introduced to a clinical trial. That's really interesting. What do you think the rest of your team could have done better to help you or talk to you about getting on a clinical trial? I think the relationship that we built assured me that this person was not steering me wrong. He got to know my family. He called my children by name. We built a relationship and a trust. My team was amazing at my first hospital, but they didn't have access to the clinical trial that I needed. So they never suggested it, never recommended it. They wanted me to go in for a second surgery. They were going to put me on a different oral medication since I was metastatic. This particular healthcare provider was like, that that doesn't sit well for me. So I really stepped out. It was quite scary for me to step out on faith and say, you know what? Let's give it a try. Let's see if I'm eligible, right? Because not everyone who desires to be on a clinical trial is eligible. Going to this new team that was absolutely amazing, just like my first team, which seems to be an anomaly because the horror stories that I hear about the lack of being seen, lack of being heard, I personally did not experience that. I'm a a very faithful person. And I said, you know what, God? You open this door for a reason, and I'm going to step out on faith and walk through it. It worked for a year from July 2017 to about July 2018. Then my body started to respond adversely. It affected my kidneys, my liver, my spleen, because my immune system went into overdrive. They had to stop the immunotherapy. But Since then, I've been no evidence of disease. If it had not been for that person who you developed a trusting relationship with, do you think you would have ever found out about the clinical trials? It was never mentioned until this one person who worked with different hospitals. So he had the information. I think one of the things, Sheila, is doctors having the information about different clinical trials that would then speak to my particular diagnosis and 
my staging and grade and aggressiveness and knowing what might help. So that means hearing me and seeing me in that moment and knowing you might have to send a patient to another hospital. You might love that patient and want care for that patient, but we're talking about dollars. We're talking about the systemic classism, racism, all of that plays a part. I would hope that we get to a point where doctors know about clinical trials in general, whether it's a part of their particular network or not, to save the person's life versus holding on to a patient. The Become Research found that there were a lot of issues with cost, insurance, logistics, health travel. How were you able to overcome all of that? I'm grateful I didn't have an issue because I lived 20 minutes away and I had an amazing team because there were times when I couldn't drive. I didn't have the energy. I was experiencing pain on my left side. I had an amazing village. My daughter was my caregiver. So I had someone to take me back and forth. I am so grateful that there were breast cancer support organizations like Carrie's Touch and Stomp Out Breast Cancer that did direct services. They raised money in the community so that I would have the finances for co-pays or whatever it was. I had support from the patient advocate, which was a blessing because some of the pharmaceutical companies will offer discounts or cover the cost of medicine that I wouldn't be able to afford. I did not have challenges with any type of access. I was one in a few. Unfortunately, this is not the norm and not the story for Black women, as we can see with the 41% mortality rate. Or with those with social economic differences, it did help that my team just reinforced my faith and saw me and really met all of my needs and were very patient. And they gave me the information that I need so that I could survive this thing that should have killed me in 2017. How did you find out about the support organizations that you mentioned? Ironically, I have been a volunteer with breast cancer organizations since living in New York. I was born and raised in Harlem, and my stepmother, she's a breast cancer survivor, and she had a breast cancer support organization called Spirit of Hope. I supported her then. When I moved to Denver, the church I was serving had a breast cancer ministry called Stomp Out Breast Cancer. Then with Carrie's Touch, Reverend Tammy Denise and I have been friends for about 15 years. So when I was diagnosed, she jumped right in and helped me with, you know, not every text message needs to be answered. You don't have to call everybody back. You got to put yourself first. Again, building relationships and being a part of community. I preach that a lot. I speak it a lot. Now I'm in Maryland and I'm learning about all these wonderful organizations, whether it's become or touch, or for the rest of all of these organizations, it's still an opportunity for me to volunteer and to do what I need to do to help save more Black women, which then will save women in general. Because if you deal with those that are most impacted, it then impacts in a positive way other groups that are marginalized or don't have the access that 
others might have. You were connected. You had the wherewithal to get to where you got listening to this person who said what he had to say and getting the support from the support groups. How would you address those who don't know how to do that? Doing what you do, you continue to insert your voice into a narrative that may often try to silence you or ignore you or oppress you or marginalize you, and you speak anyway. So as we continue to do that, we teach others to be advocates for themselves. We teach others, we give them the language. It's really about empowerment and helping people make informed decisions, knowing that when I stand, I don't stand alone. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, I stand with 1,000 people behind me, even though it looks like I'm alone, but I know I have a village that is going to support me. We don't talk about cancer often. My cousin, who is my age, still says the C word. She doesn't say cancer. We got to name it in order to face it, to fix it. In our Black communities, I have family members that suffer in silence. We don't want any of our beloveds to suffer. So we got to keep speaking, keep inserting ourselves into the narrative. We need the Marthas of the world who are sitting at the table to say, well, what about Black women? What about this 41% mortality rate in the boardroom, at the holiday dinner table? Speak up and insert speak our names. That's how we are going to bring awareness across the board because awareness is the first step to addressing the systemic ills, to then dismantling the systemic ills, and then building a community that's egalitarian, that's loving, that's supportive, that's life-giving, that's graceful, that's honorable, that sees me Since you were part of a clinical trial, you have a different experience than most. What do you think trials can do better in becoming more accessible to Black patients or people of color or people with economic disparities? I learned this from Sheila. Clinical trials should be one of the first things that are mentioned when you walk into a space with your healthcare provider. When we talk about treatment plans and care, clinical trials need to be on that list at the beginning. When we're talking about different chemos, when we're talking about surgery, bilateral mastectomy, mastectomy, lumpectomy, radiation, chemo, I think adding clinical trials to that list of possible treatment options would be great. Another thing is the Affordable Care Act. That opened up some more doors for those who don't have access to at least have medical coverage to go into a space. But unfortunately, we didn't get to really see it come into full fruition because there are cancer centers that have limited access themselves. There are centers that may have one oncologist or they don't have oncologists that specialize in breast cancer or colon, you know, if we can get access, especially in those rural areas and those areas that are challenged economically, I think that's a next step from the Affordable Care Act 
to now serving me fully in those spaces, honoring me as a Black woman, and then dealing with the astronomical healthcare pharmaceutical prices that people just can't afford and end up dying because they have to choose to feed their family before paying a copay. I think it's in stages on how we can insert clinical trials. It's not just inserting the clinical trial. It's addressing the fullness of the person when they come into the office and say, I feel this lump or you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. What are we going to do together to save your life? Absolutely. I could be wrong, but I don't think that the physicians at the hospitals are gatekeeping clinical trials. It's they don't know what they don't know. So if your hospital isn't a trial hospital, then they're not going to be aware of a lot of clinical trials just because of what their limits are at the facilities that they work at. Absolutely. During our time together with the symposium, someone shared a website of clinical trials. If we had more of that, where doctors and researchers can go in and see what clinical trials are available and be willing to lose that patient physically, but they're going to gain life by going to another facility. I don't know if ego is involved. I don't know if money is involved. I don't want to speak out of turn and speak ill of those who don't introduce clinical trials to patients. But at the same time, I want you to do whatever you need to do by any means necessary to make sure you save my life because I'm entrusting my life in your hands. Do you think that the insurance that a person has has any effect on whether or not they find out about clinical trials? I haven't been behind the scenes of a clinical trial, but in order for you to be introduced to that clinical trial, you probably need insurance to be under some doctor's care. So if you don't have insurance, how are you going to get in the door to be under a doctor's care to know about a clinical trial? Because our goal is to get to the clinical trial. Our start is the patient with metastatic breast cancer. So in between there, there are going to be steps that has to be taken. But if there's a roadblock here, whether it's insurance, economic status, what do we need to do to fulfill that need so that we can get that person to the clinical trial? I love that we're naming it and introducing Black women to clinical trials. I also want us to prepare Black women and women in general for the possibility of not being accepted in a clinical trial, because that's the reality. We want to have real talk. We're not here to sell dreams and say, oh, yes, we can get you a part of a clinical trial. No, don't promise that. That's like promising somebody everything's going to be okay. You don't know that. That's your hope. So let's use that language to say, I hope I can get you a part of a clinical trial, because these are the parameters that surround the clinical trial. Let's find which area you fit in, and then let's see if your age requirement is met, your diagnosis is met, your history. Do you have any underlying illness? All of that plays apart. Instead of us finding a clinical trial, let's the clinical trial find me. Because then the likelihood of me being on a clinical trial will increase because then the person will know 
all of those answers to the questions I just posed. So access and qualification, we got to balance that out. And again, talking about that workflow, it maybe it's not working from the patient to the clinical trial. Maybe it needs to come from the clinical trial to the patient. Before you were diagnosed with MBC, did you have any thoughts at all about clinical trials? I had limited knowledge about clinical trials and any knowledge I had was negative because just historically, I don't even know if they were called clinical trials then, but whatever they were, it was harmful to us in the Black diaspora. So other than that, I had no idea of the benefits, if you will, of clinical trials and how they care for you. I I was under deep care tests and blood work and checking in on me and calling me and scans, everything was happening so that if there was anything that went awry, they would know it immediately. Being under a clinical trial is not only just receiving the medicine that's on the trial, but it comes along with a team of people that check in with you and ask you questions that big stack of paper that you have to (laughs) fill out and complete. They don't just say here, take these 100 pages and fill it out. They're filling it out with you. So you're really under a microscope during your healing process. That feels kind of good. My doctor would always say to me, Tawana, no matter what happens on this part of the journey, I will make sure we do our very best to make sure you live. We would read my PET scans and when everything lit up, she said, don't worry, this is not cancer. This is the immunotherapy making your body go crazy. But even if it were cancer, I would find whatever I needed to find to make sure you had the medication to fight this cancer so that you can live. And I will never forget those words from her. Never. Your experience is wonderful. I had a wonderful experience too. But what do you think the healthcare providers can do to really have the right language that will make us trust our healthcare providers? Being open to sit in spaces like this. I started a nonprofit organization seven years ago, and it's still up and running, Soul to Soul Sisters. We center Black women, Black healing, health, and joy. We have an experience called Facing Racism, and we invite people to come in for a seven-week session. We talk about systemic ills. We talk about racism. We talk about anti-Black racism. We talk about it in the medical field. We talk about it in the streets. We talk about it at work. We talk, you know, to bring awareness for our white beloveds so that they have the language to have the courage to speak against it. So the doctors being willing, and I know we're all busy, but learning and being perpetual learners is so important. It's important for doctors and healthcare providers and patient advocates to put themselves in spaces about implicit bias because we all have biases, but we cannot let that negatively impact treatment for a patient. Being able to learn how to actively listen in a way that honors the person sitting before you because there are some things you got to know about a culture. Something as simple as shaking hands. Some women don't shake hands with men. 
You got to know that as a doctor, you don't need to do a deep dive and know of every culture, but have some idea. Like, do you mind if I shake your hand? Can we talk about your diagnosis? Can we say the word cancer? Because I, I need to name these things. Be curious about someone when you walk into that the doctor's office. You don't have to know everything. We know that you went to medical school and you have all your degrees and your accolades. But when you walk into this room, along with that, don't leave it out because I need you to bring all that wisdom in the room with you. But have this epistemological curiosity about me, who I am, what is my history? Is my culture the type of culture that doesn't talk about cancer? Because when we talk about cancer, it equals death in our community. I just need you to see me and I need you to be curious about who you see sitting before you and what I bring to the table, whether I have a second grade education or a PhD. I need you to love me and honor me and want me to live and not die at the hands of systemic ills in this country. We next hear from Valerie Worthy who's a patient navigator at Duke Cancer Center and co-founder of Touch, the Black Breast Cancer Alliance. For her thoughts and advice for what patients can do now to navigate trials and what clinicians can do better, here's Valerie. As a practitioner, how do you make sure that people know about the clinical trials? If I can catch patients at the front end before they have seen their oncologist for the first time, I can say to them, listen, your doctor is going to talk to you about a lot of things. And they may even talk about a clinical trial. Please don't close your mind to that. Then what I have to say is what I say at my church, clinical trials are not scary. You know, the Advil that you took two days ago for a headache, all of that. Someone had to be on a clinical trial in order to know that it worked. And so I want you to be just as open-minded about this clinical trial that perhaps your doctor may discuss. And if they don't, then you ask them, is there something available? Are you assigned people? Like, how does that happen that you would get them beforehand? Sometimes we are assigned patients, but a lot of times they're based on barriers. So when you work at a high volume cancer center, you can't see every cancer patient, most of the time you have to screen patients to see if they have barriers. Is it transportation, childcare, health literacy, just fear? And sometimes fear prevents people from making an informed decision. And so we identify those barriers and then connect them with an appropriate navigator. So at that point, you have an opportunity to build relationships. I don't think that you can talk about a clinical trial or anything else before you build a relationship. And that may be some of the reasons why when those conversations began, patients are like hands off because the relationship building hasn't started. And sometimes it can be as simple as, how are you? And I know this must be difficult. And how's your family managing this? Then that sets, I think, the stage that the provider really does care, and then you can take it to a next level. But you just can't walk in and say, this is your doctor, and I recommend a clinical trial. It just doesn't work. These patients come in and they might already be hesitant 
about clinical trials. What are the concerns you're seeing of patients, particularly your patients of color? And what have you learned to do or to pay attention to these and overcome their concerns? I think it's being a guinea pig and the first trying it and not sure that this is going to really work. Or some people still believe that they get the sugar pill. And so the possibility of not getting treated at all, you have to explain all the rules, all the regulations that have happened over the years to protect patients. It's almost like a standard of care that you get and a comparison of the standard of care. So you are going to get care. Some people say, well, how do I know I get what I get? And then explaining like where some people are randomized. So even your doctor doesn't know if you're getting the standard of care or if you're getting a clinical trial. I think one of the other things that has been empowering is explaining to patients that the average person on a non-cancer clinical trial is a 50-year-old white man. So if he is 202 pounds and the prescription is for you to take two pills every four hours, Maybe that's not you. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you're 110 and 55. We need to be represented. Sometimes I say, don't you think it's about time for us to represent ourselves and not someone else speak for us? And I think those are moments of empowerment where when you're diagnosed, you feel like you have no power. But for you to understand and then be able to make an informed decision, I think that brings empowerment in a day where you feel like you're losing all control. I think it's the way you say it and how you deliver it that makes a difference. I think you're right. Once you're a patient, we lose control of a lot of things. Just obviously our health, our hair, how we feel day-to-day work, all of those things, which can make it very difficult. If patients can feel comfortable with their practitioners, then the suggestion of a clinical trial might be better received than if there was no relationship started at the beginning. Absolutely. What do you feel is happening when the patient and the practitioner, whether or not it's a nurse navigator, oncologist, looks like the patient? I read a study that totally shocked me. So it almost depends on the generation. They did a study on preference of provider. And it appears that the younger age group preferred to have someone that looked like them. Older generation, it didn't matter as long as they were caring, explained things well. I thought that everybody would prefer to have someone that looked like them. I do, however, think it makes a difference. Let's say if I'm sitting with an African-American patient and they had an African-American provider I don't think they feel as intimidated. I think they ask more questions. Similarly, I've been in with Asian patients and they had an Asian provider. And just the moment that that provider walked in, it was just like this instant connection. So I don't think it's just African-Americans that long to see someone that looks like them. People I've known all my life are people of faith. But I see when I am in the rooms with African-American patients, and they have a white doctor, they'll talk about faith, but it's almost apologetic. Similarly, if we're in the room with an African-American provider, a patient may say, thank you, doctor, and I prayed about this and I have faith. And the responses are different, honestly, from the provider. 
So there are some cultural differences, I think, that we have to work through to make that a safe space, as safe as you can make it in a cancer center. Do you ever help the patient find clinical trials? Definitely, you would have to help them. I was sitting in with someone and this patient actually missed this trial because they had surgery before instead of having the chemotherapy. And just talking to the doctor about, but what about this study or what about this? So just sometimes raising the question as if it's my question, but the doctor being able to explain it in terms that the patient understands. I think all that is helping to decrease health illiteracy, but also guiding the patients into having meaningful conversations. I love that because it's so hard when you are at that point of making a decision. It would really be helpful to have someone like you in the room. I've come to understand that if that patient is there alone, or maybe with a family member, and let's say they decided they're going to enroll in a clinical trial, then they have to go back home and explain everything to people that already have preconceived ideas about clinical trial. And so if you don't explain it well, the next day, the provider is going to get a call, I've changed my mind about the clinical trial. Most of the time, it's because they could not convey the information in a way that the family understood it. And the family's argument outweighed what the provider was able to get the patient to understand. So sometimes I ask questions that maybe the patient didn't ask, but I know when they get home, somebody's going to ask that question. In this Become Project, There's a lot of logistic issues that affect Black patients in terms of clinical trials, and that's access, cost, time, travel, et cetera. What would you say the number one reason would be someone would drop out of a clinical trial? Transportation is the number one barrier across probably the world, but I can't say the United States. Transportation is a huge barrier. And then I think it's the side effects. I think sometimes when the clinical trial explained the side effects are glossed over just a bit, it's hard to navigate how much time you focus on the side effects for it to be informative and not frightening. I think sometimes you get what the side effects are, but maybe you don't hear the remedies for it. So then all they hear is, oh yeah, I got these mouth sores, I can't eat. All those kinds of things. So that's all they remember. So those two things are biggies, I think, for patients. I think you're right. If I think about treatments that I've been on, you always see like what are the most common side effects and what are less likely to happen. And I'm like, oh, those aren't going to happen to me. That's what you think. And then you do the treatment and you feel like garbage all the time. So, But I think we could tell, normalize it and say, yeah, you might get sick. But we've got wonderful medications. And if they're Mm -hmm. not working, you got to keep telling us, bug the heck out of us because we have what you need to help. That's a really good point. I think this might derive from people of color because we have a trust in this system, right? The doctor seems like an authoritative person over us. We're reluctant to share how we feel. 
because we don't want to inconvenience anyone. I'm the opposite now. Now it's just like, I don't feel good. I'm coming in for fluids. I think it helps. When you say that, you're part of the team advocating for yourself. In the African-American community in particular, we definitely have an issue of trust when it comes to the healthcare professionals, especially because of so many different things that have happened in the past. So if you're in a clinical trial and there are some adverse effects, especially some side effects that even if they were talked about, they might not have registered, how is that handled in your position? I always kind of share a story. I was on medication and not that this was a bad side effect, but my tongue turned a crazy color and my nails turned black. I went to my oncologist. I said, what's going on here? He said to me, Valerie, there weren't enough African-Americans in the trial for me to know if other African-American women's tongues turned a gray color and nails were black. And my nails didn't fall off, but some African-American women that I know, theirs did. But again, I talked to, to patients about we don't have enough representation in these trials. We'll never know how it impacts us. We need to. Otherwise, we don't have a clue of whether or not it's even helping us. I think there's an ignorance amongst our communities that they think that the care is less than. And in reality, it seems like when you're in the trial, the care is better than. That's another thing that we try to emphasize. Because you're on a clinical trial, you get more surveillance, more observation, more tests than you would if you were not on a trial. And things are recorded. This is the other thing that I say to African-Americans. So you can be on a clinical trial where absolutely everything that happens to you is recorded and given to the people that created the drug. Or you cannot be on the trial, it's approved, and you have side effects that are never recorded. So you would either be officially on a trial or unofficially on a trial. But either way, you're going to be on a trial. So which would you rather do? The one that's recorded where other people can learn from what happened to you or one that would probably never learn. So probably nobody knows that my tongue was dark. There's nowhere that's recorded. So I can't reach millions of people to tell them that. But had it been other African-American women that were diagnosed before me that had been on the trial, then maybe that's something my doctor would say, oh yeah, Val, they have that, but it goes away in a few months and you'll be fine. So it's all of these little things I think that people don't think about, but once you mention it, they have that aha moment like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Is there anything that trials and trial planners can do to make trials more accessible to people of color? This is just my personal thought. The hardest time to convince someone to do something is when they're in the storm. All you're thinking about is survival and the easiest and the fast track to survival. I would love for us to be able to engage in the community, be it civic organizations, sororities, fraternities, and the faith-based community. Talk about clinical trials and talk about cancer before someone is diagnosed. Since we know that we are dying disproportionately from cancer, why not then raise the awareness about things that we can do when we're diagnosed so that when people come into a cancer center, they know 
Yeah, I may have surgery. I may have chemotherapy. And one of the other options may be a clinical trial. I think that we have to start the conversation before someone's diagnosed. That would be helpful. The other thing is, for those of us in African-American community, we are still a stigma. Being able to share that story and to say, hey, I was on a clinical trial. I am on a clinical trial. And look at me. We are people of witness. You know, you remember Grandmama's Church, the preacher said, can I get a witness, right? So if you're a survivor and you survive cancer and you've been on a clinical trial, what greater advocate could it be than me seeing Sheila and Natalia saying, y'all, look at me. Metastatic breast, look at me. And people would say, what is it that you had now? You know, And then they go back and tell other people in their family they're struggling. I saw these two ladies and they look so good. I, y'all need to be trying what they're trying. That's what we do. My issue is how do we find out about these things? I'm a woman who was willing to go on to a cl- clinical trial, but have not accessed anything in a timely fashion that goes along with my subtype, with what it is that I'm trying to do, location, all those different things that go into play. It's very difficult to find a clinical trial. I think that is so true, Sheila, on so many levels, from clinical trials to the care that you receive. And zip code does matter. I live in an area where I have two NCI-designated cancer centers. When you are near places that are designated cancer centers, those are the places that are going to get those trials. And even if they don't have the trial, they know which hospitals, which cancer centers have the trial. I always tell patients, when you go in, look for a navigator or a social worker, because somebody has to be your coordinator, because you shouldn't have to do all the work. And you say, I'm interested in a trial. Can you connect me someone? There are a lot more portals that you can go on other than clinicaltrials.gov, which I think is a bit cumbersome, but that's all we have for a very long time. Now, this is it. They're not going to give it to you on the civil platter. You have to ask. And like I tell people, bug the heck out of them until you get your answer. Yes. Are there nonprofit groups, organizations, or anything like that, that you are recommending your patients to go on to help navigate clinical trials? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question. For breast cancer survivors, Touch Black Breast Cancer Alliance, we have a special program called When We Trial. And we've gone around cities just talking about clinical trials, normalizing it, showing people the face of people that have been on clinical trials. And then helping them to access our portal where they can put their information in and then we can connect them to various sites that are offering clinical trial. I think that's the easiest thing is if you have to go on a big old site and go through every kind of cancer until you find yours, it's just too much for a person to do. I would love to see these sites everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. My dream is one day that the demand for clinical trial will outweigh what they have on hand and people have to work 24-7 because 
you know, we're demanding clinical trials. And I believe that day will come. I also believe that sometimes in African-American community, the patient will tell the pastor that they were diagnosed with cancer before they tell the family because they sometimes need that advice to how they say it. I've asked pastors, so after you pray with the patient, then what do you say? I offered some advice. I said, when they see their doctor, the doctor's going to explain a lot of things to you. But also the doctor should tell you if there are any available clinical trials. And if not, then you ask them. With the pastor putting his stamp of approval on that conversation, we empower people to go into this scary space and ask in a kind way, are there available clinical trials? And when you ask, it's almost like the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Unfortunately, there's enough data out there that says that doctors can look at us and determine whether or not we would be on a clinical trial. That they don't ask because they've already thought that we wouldn't be good candidates. That have anything to do with a medical history. It's just the look, the zip code, all of those kinds of things. So if we don't ask, I don't think in some instances this information will be given to us. What I'm hearing is that there can be bias when a doctor is talking to you about introducing new information about your cancer and they might just go the route of standard of care. A good example would be if you had a Black person from Africa that needed a translator, it might just be easier to skip over that question and just talk about what the standard of care treatment is because it's so hard. You're not speaking the same language and it makes the appointment longer. It makes translating everything not as effective when you're trying to give the information. So you can see how that bias might play into someone losing an opportunity for a clinical trial. Absolutely. This is the other thing. The more I tried to do research on why there is such a disparity. And some of it is that all of the paperwork that sometimes the oncologist has to complete. It's easier sometimes for them to do the conventional, what's already tested and approved, because there's not that paperwork that's attached to what you have for the clinical trials. If they think, oh yeah, I have a patient and they've already got all these comorbidities and they're probably not compliant and this is their zip code. It's no need for me to ask. I don't want to do all that paperwork to find out they only take two cycles of this and then they're out. It's just too much paperwork. Sometimes that is the rationale for not asking people. I think this is another thing too that I'm sure on some level every hospital does this, but it's almost like a no-show rate, like how many times this person didn't show up for any of their appointments, but it never says why, right? So you may have a person that doesn't show up because they don't have transportation or they didn't have gas in their car or their child was sick, but that doesn't show that they're not compliant. And I think sometimes when we see a high rate of no-show, some think that that means that that person isn't compliant. And those two things are not synonyms. You know, they they didn't show up because of X, Y, Z. Not they didn't show up because they were non-compliant and they didn't care about their health. I think we really have to advocate for ourselves and explain 
I didn't have transportation. I didn't have assistance with this in order for us to really be viewed as if we are invested in our health care. When someone doesn't show up and let's say they call you, Valerie, mm-hmm. what resources are you providing them? That's a great question because, again, people don't know resources that are in their community because they haven't ever had to access this. So in some communities you have, for example, American Cancer Society has Road to Recovery. And if you have volunteers in your community, because that's all volunteer based, that is one resource you can use. Oftentimes people ask in your church, like, how can you help? Well, become a volunteer, help someone make their appointment. There are other organizations, like if you have Medicaid in North Carolina, it will provide for the transportation. There's an application, but after the application is completed, they will provide transportation. And then there are some things that are written in the plan for if you're on a clinical trial, we tried our best to get the study coordinator to include that in the budget, if at all possible, so that that could potentially provide a gas card or some other mode of transportation. We contract with cabs to bring people back and forth to their appointments. But there are different things that you can do. I'm even thinking about Monday through Saturday, a lot of churches in the community have these vans that they don't use. Hey, we need to get those things up and running so we can get our folks back and forth to their appointments. Is there anything that a physician or healthcare team can do to rebuild trust that has been lost with a person of color? I can't say the word transparency enough, but I think some things are innate. Like if you're the kind of person that communicates well, that is self-reflective and humble, then you can go back to patients and say, you know what? I didn't do a good job at that. And I know I only get one chance to make the first impression, but I'm asking you, can we start this thing over again and tell me how is the best way that you understand things? When someone says to me, what do you think about that? And what do you think I said? You don't have to say the word trust because I know that's what you're trying to do. When you don't ask me that and when you assume that you know what's best for me without me corroborating that, then I think that you don't trust me to be a part of the decision-making. So just simple thing makes a difference. But I think that you have to get on a level of humbleness, which might be a challenge to some people, honestly. It might be a challenge. But you just can't practice it, then put it back in your coat pocket, until you need it the next time, because you never refine it. What are doctors learning from other physicians that keeps getting passed on and it's not effective for a patient, especially while trying to build trust or connect them with a clinical trial? What do you wish doctors would stop doing with their patients in order to help them better, either by building trust or helping them navigate clinical trials? I want doctors to stop looking through their lens and take those off and put on the lens of a patient. I am not saying I want every oncologist to have a family member or friend that has had a diagnosis, but those that have, 
it's a different kind of feel that you get around them. I was having a conversation with an oncologist and the patient that I was sitting there with, she's getting the same treatment that I got 20 years ago. So I said, you getting the same treatment I got 20 years ago? The doctor chimed in and said, yeah. And my mom got that 31 years ago. You knew that. Now she knows kind of how I'm feeling. I think having a family member really helped her to understand the fear. So at that point, when you have a family member or a friend, you have to take off that lens of being the scientist and you become the human being who happens to be educated on a cancer. It's the human being part first. We have a saying in my community that our patients say to the doctors, we don't care what you know until we know that you care. And so you got to show that you care first and then the rest come. I have found in my own personal experience with two Caucasian doctors, male and female, that I asked them questions. And in doing that, in humanizing myself to them, they listen to me better. And that brings me to the question of what can we do going forward to make sure that there is representation of African-Americans in clinical trials in the future? I think one of the things that we've not done really well with is bringing the people that are impacted into the conversation. It's easy for us to have conferences in these fancy, fancy places, and we have world-renowned leaders, but it's almost like you're preaching to the choir who knows every verse and the chorus. So nothing ever changes. But when you bring the people to the table, maybe they don't know the vocabulary or all the social norms, but you bring them to the table and you hear the voice of that frightened individual or that person that says, I've been feeling this lump, but I'm not going in there because when they cut you, it spreads everywhere. I mean, who hasn't heard that? Story? But when you all sit at the same level, you bring to that table rich information. And it's just as rich coming from the community as it is from the medical community. And then you write out your plan. And as we always say, make it measurable and realistic. And then you go back to the community, whatever it is, six months later, a year later, and say, this is what we did really good on. We didn't do really good on this. So what are some other strategies? But you keep that communication going. And then you can say, they were a part of this. It's not like we're trying to dictate, we know what's best for you. And it hasn't worked in all these years. So we got to do something different. Have you been able to do that at Duke? Oh, we've done that. But you have to do it continuously. At the church that I'm a a member of in Durham, the River Church, we've had people come in and talk about clinical trials. We've done small level clinical trials where we look for different things in people. So they had to have blood drawn, all of that. So if any of those people ever get a cancer, it's not like it's a foreign thing for them. They know the word clinical trial. If you'd like to discuss this episode or any other episode, please join our new closed Facebook group, RMBC Life Group. The episode is produced by Martha Carlson, Sheila Pettifer, and me, Natalia Green. Original music and sound design by Connor Kinzel. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education 
at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and our full episode notes on our website, rmbclife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RMBC Life.